Hey, Corey here, and this is Everything is Marketing. Other marketing podcasts might give you the highlight reel or focus on a particular industry, strategy, or tactic, but this podcast explores marketing from every angle and allows you to get inside the head of the guest to really understand who they are and how they think. SavvyCal is a new scheduling tool that helps you optimize your calendar to do your best work. Let's face it, most 30-minute meetings could have been 15 minutes instead, and most 60-minute meetings could have been 30 minutes instead. With SavvyCal, you can offer multiple meeting durations on the same scheduling link so recipients can book as little or as much time as they need with you. Create a free account at SavvyCal.com EIM, and you can also get your first month of a paid account free by using the code EIM. On the show today is Jeff Shelton. Jeff is the founder of Ugmunk, which creates products that combine both form and function. I wanted to bring him on because Jeff is a fantastic designer that has an eye for detail. He's one of the original founders to build in public, and he's managed to build a successful brand without any paid advertising, which is a huge feat in the e-commerce and D2C industry. So you hear about how and why they launched every product on Kickstarter first, how he uses storytelling to create immersive landing pages, and how to create remarkable products. So to start out, I love asking my guests, did you ever think that you'd be designing and selling your own products online for a living? Honestly, no. I mean, I've always had a passion for making things and creating things and have been doing art my whole life. So I, I always wanted to do something with my hands, but I didn't really think that that would be my career of making things and then selling them, especially as an artist, because people you know, growing up, it's like, that's great. You have a talent. You can draw, you can sketch, you can paint. But I never really took it from there and was like, how am I going to make a career out of this? I got to pick something else. But it's kind of come full circle, which is cool. So I get to I get to make things maybe a little bit different than painting a picture, but I get to design things and think of these ideas, create them and then sell them, which is, yeah, honestly, I'm just super, super grateful to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the conundrum that most people find themselves in is that they have some sort of skill, some passion, some art that they put out into the world, but then it's really, it's, it's only art to them. Right. And so people don't want it or not enough people want it to make a business have out of it, but you have managed to kind of crack that code and uh, you have a successful brand, Ugmunk, uh, which I'm a huge fan of happened for a long time, but I'm wondering, can you walk me through a little bit of a timeline, just a brief kind of 30,000 foot view of like, what are the steps that got you to where you are today? Yeah, so I've been running Ugmunk for almost 13 years, which sounds like eternity, wow. especially in, in <laughs> internet years. I mean, launching in 2008 was a completely different time, pre-social mm. media. I think Twitter was just coming out. And I was explaining to somebody recently about this and like, they're like, well, how did you get your word out? Like, if you didn't have social media, I was like, I don't know. And I started thinking about, we, we launched in a time of forums and blogs and the internet was just so small and so kind of like we all were funneled into certain places that it was, I got featured on a few of those key places and then it grew. But yeah, I launched in 2008 designing t-shirts that I wanted to wear was really my my business plan for say, which I never really planned anything. <laughs> designing minimal t-shirts, people started buying them, started getting featured. This is the very condensed timeline that led to, hey, I think I should make more of these and people are asking for more. Kept going, kept building. I left my full-time job in 2010, so I actually only had one real job in my whole career, which was mm. right out of college and then to leaving in 2010, and went full-time. And then Ugmunk expanded from shirts. I went into leather goods and some desk accessories and have slowly been building it, just really methodically, really organically. A lot of, we'll get into this, but just tons of word of mouth and like a very organic grow, growth from 2008 to where we are today in 2021 and that's like the the thread that ties it all together is really that I've been designing things that I want to exist or that I want to use or like things that I like and it's attracted a an audience a loyal audience of people that also have the same design sensibilities and appreciate the form and function and it's just the kind of like yeah it's it's weird to look back at this entire 13 year journey and say like where we started and where we've where we are today how similar it is to really where i started yeah yeah well again i think that uh, it's the fact that you do have great taste and people want to sort of latch on and, and become a part of the brand that, that you have created for yourself that you know makes you successful and it's sort of like this this gravitational pull right where you put things out there and then if people like it then people uh follow you and then they you know get introduced to all the other things that you do and create i'm wondering if you can nerd out with me for a little bit and just think about the way that people find you and engage with you if you have any sort of sense of 
those early days of the internet, right? Everyone's kind of siphoned into these, you know, little niche kind of digital watering holes. Now the internet is huge and expansive and there's all sorts of different ways that people find, discover, use products, different places that they engage and you know, watering holes are no longer watering holes. They're, you know, oceans and lakes and these ginormous places where it's very noisy and loud. Has that, how has that changed over time? Just the way that people find and engage with Ugmunk? Yeah, it's weird to think about because the, the landscape of the digital landscape has changed completely. But I think the way that people find out about Ugmunk is still pretty much uh, a one-to-one relationship, a word of mouth or, you know, social, social media, Instagram, Twitter specifically have boosted, kind of amplified where we're at. But the most people's story, like I was going to ask you where you found out about Ugmunk, most of the time it's like a friend telling a friend like, dude, you should check this out. Or Mm. they're wearing one of our shirts and people are like, I got stopped in the airport and like three people asked me where I got this shirt from. And it's just like, it's spread in those direct relationships. And I think my goal has always been as Seth Godin calls it to be to make remarkable products where the products are so good that you can't help but tell people about them and there's something about them that catches people's eye and it just kind of spreads from there so Mm. i think social media has had a huge impact on getting out there and and by social media i mean organic social media i'm not talking about like we've pumped uh you know six figures into facebook ads every month this is like literally me just posting behind the scenes posting product launch stuff posting pictures of my family like there's been no real marketing strategy to it but i think people have followed my journey as a designer and as a creator and have come have stuck with me for you know five ten almost the entire journey where people are following me for like 13 years and it's like crazy they kind of saw me grow up and like have kids and like the the next stage of ugmunk but there's this really it's really the 1000 true fans mentality like that when you really like something you'll show up for every single event you'll you'll buy everything they make and I think that loyal audience just has such a, yeah, a magnetic or gravitational pull towards them that has been very much the opposite of like, let's push ads out, let's push things into people's feeds. And it's just kind of little by little, like a hit here, a hit here, you know, podcast and Instagram feature on, on someone else's feed or something like that, like that. It's just been all of these things building up and kind of ratcheted to where the place we are today. Hmm. Can you Can you see some of the like retention or repeat uh, buyers, repeat customers, or is it a little bit kind of more spread out? Like you mentioned, you know, people staying with you for five or 10 years or sort of being along with the journey. Like, does that show up in the numbers or is that just sort of representation of how you see your audience and, you know, uh, these indicators, you know, through maybe little clues you see at different places? Yeah, I think it's both. I mean, our repeat customer rate is so high. I don't have the percentage offhand, but it's, it's really, really high. And it's not just like, one, two or three purchases, somebody just sent me a screenshot, a customer, and he's like, just thought it was cool. I looked at my order history and they've been ordering since 2013 and they've wow. placed, I don't know, 17 orders or something since then that it's like, it's crazy when you look at how many people have stuck with us because Ugmunk has changed. We've evolved. We've grown. Not everybody still wants to wear tees. Like it's, it's interesting to see that people are actually that loyal to what I've made, what I'm making. And, and we're talking like small numbers. This isn't, you know, millions of people following, but it's enough that have sustained the growth uh, and expansion of Ugmunk. And I just love the fact that people have come along for the journey and come along that, that long where they bought a shirt in 2013. And then here they are, you know, almost a decade later and they're buying another shirt or they're buying something else. And that's really meaningful to me as a creator, as a designer. You know, I don't consider myself really a, a marketer or even a manager or any, any expert in the, on the growth side of things. So it's really validating and it's really rewarding to have people that care that much that they're like, what else are you making? What else are you making? And they want to keep coming mm-hmm. back. Yeah. Yeah. I think it really does come back to that, that idea of creating remarkable products. And I'm glad that you brought up Seth Godin because I'm a huge Godin knight. And that was exactly what I was thinking was, you know, sort of the whole purple cow thesis and principle of doing something that, that stands out, that's new, this novel that, that really is, you know, remarkable in a way where someone actually remarks, they physically say, Hey, where'd you get that? Or, Hey, a nice shirt. Or, Oh, this is interesting. Or they go and share, they, they, um, sort of have that word of mouth engine where they go and tell friends about it. And I'm wondering if that, sort of remarkable product, you know, purple cow principle is something that was more a byproduct of sort of your own craft and, and the things that you create, 
or if that was something that's more kind of intentionally designed or that you knew going in, if this is going to work, that I need to do something that is remarkable so that I don't have to do some of the traditional quote unquote marketing things like mm-hmm. paid ads or PR or things like that. Yeah, it's probably a little of both. I, I think I, I more see it as like a standard of, of except excellence or just creating exceptional products and things that I'm proud of doing it with my identity, like my personal identity tied to the brand kind of puts my neck on the line every time I launch something. And that's where I think a lot of creators get stuck because it's like, you know, they built the thing, they've been working on it, but they're not sure if they want to put it out there because it's not quite there. And just like getting it to that point where you're almost comfortable enough, you're never ready to ship it, but to ship the thing, put it out there and put your stamp of approval and your identity to it is a really hard thing to do. But that's like the the part where I feel like I've excelled at over the years is just waiting and waiting and waiting till that thing is, you know, we're, we're shaving off this bit, we're fixing this, we're finding a new manufacturer, we're doing all of the things to make this piece accept. And then what that leads to is like, sure, did it really need to take me four plus years to make a desk organizer, a modular desk organizer? No, like I could have done that probably, you know, in a couple months as far as like product development and just pushing it through the, the channel to get it out. But I keep like sitting on things really long and refining them and perfecting them and waiting till it's right. And and I'm not a patient person. <laughs> like I'm not patient when it comes to this. It's like <laughs> I want to show you guys. Like I'm working on something literally right now that I'm like I cannot wait to show people this. But it's still at least six months away. Mm-hmm. But I think it's really all for me. It's all about putting those extra details into that last five or ten percent, and then putting my stamp of approval and saying hey, this is whatever ninety nine percent right. I'm putting it out there. And then people really react and they notice and they're like, oh, I saw this little detail, the way you, you, know, you, you hid this little thing, or it's just enjoyable to use because of the way the magnets fit into the wood on this piece. And so I don't know that it's like intentional that I'm trying to make from a guerrilla marketing standpoint, like crazy things and purple cows mm. in the fact that I want people to talk about them. But I do want people to have products that are so well considered and, and thoughtful little details that they can't help but be like, man, I really like this thing or I, I find use and value out of this product. Right, right. Yeah, this is more of an observation more than anything or a traditional question, but you had mentioned sort of that early on you were just sharing behind the scenes content and you're, you know, giving, you know, kind of looping people into the product development process a little bit. And even if it takes months and months and months and even years sometimes, right, for people to see the final product that you're you're giving these little uh, snapshots and these quick glimpses. Even like you said, there's one that you're working on now. I think I saw a glimpse the other day where I got kind of excited and it had to do with like a pencil and some sort of, I don't know, it, it was just like the, a corner of a product. It, is that something, so I love the behind the scenes kind of content. It, it builds anticipation. Whereas if you just sort of surprise people with a product, that can be great and that can be interesting and that can be something that, you know, makes a splash, but you're only realizing the potential of sort of that, that current audience and what you've already, you know, the information you've shared so far. Whereas if you give a lot of behind the scenes content, it builds that anticipation and now you have a lot more, instead of it being a surprise, it's more of, you know, finally releasing the thing that people have been anticipating, which is an even greater event than a a surprise launch. Yeah, I mean, that's really intentional. And I think because I, as a creator, love to see behind the scenes of other what other people are working on, whether it's a digital or a physical thing, it gives you a bigger appreciation for what goes into making something like we, mm. we often see these super polished, beautiful designs, you know, and when somebody launches a product, it's cool, and it looks great, but you have no idea, like the iterations and the prototyping and the, the all of the failures along the way to get to that point. So that wrote, that always resonated with me, and I'm a sucker for all the behind the scenes features on any movie. Like it's like I like the movie, but I love watching like the two hour special on like how they mm-hmm. actually figured out how to do that. And then it's like, man, I want to watch it again, and it gives me a, a bigger appreciation. So I've done that, you know, in a, a small way, just again organically, just trying to drip out some content, um, posting little little snippets, little teasers, getting people to see the process versus like hey, here's the thing, do you want to buy it? It's like people love to be along, kind of come along and see that happening as much as you can without giving the whole product away. So I've been really, I've tried to be really transparent and open with sharing my process, showing sketches, showing how I work through things, writing about, you know, anything from finding a manufacturer to why we didn't launch this last year or whatever it was. Mm. Giving that, it's just more human. And I think we all gravitate towards that versus a press release about the features and specs of the product that just came out. It's like, I don't, you know, that doesn't really get me excited. 
mm. when I see other companies. So that's that's kind of where that comes from. Yeah, right, right, right. And it's the it's, it really is looping people into the process that gives them, like I said, a greater appreciation where now they're more excited than they would have been before. And it's really kind of the, the original building a public, like, I don't know if you've seen on Twitter, this whole like building a public scene on Twitter of it's a lot of like makers and no coders and people building a lot of, you know, even like internet or software startups, but you were doing it way back in the day with, with physical products and with, you know, looping people in. I'm wondering, is that something that you, you purely did just out of instinct? And also now, like, do you, do you have a kind of a, you know, not to get too tactical, but like just to put it to re- help people visualize what it actually looks like. You know, do you share a certain amount over social media? Do you share a certain amount over email? How do you know what to share and when to share through the process? Like just to, to give people an idea of what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, I'm probably the opposite of tactical and, and scheduled and organized on that front, to be honest. Like I'm very yeah. organic in the way it's like, I don't have a schedule. I don't have anything automated. Like I probably should and probably would help me give some sense of like calm to my life where I'm like, oh, I didn't post anything. I should post something. I feel like it's a lot of it, though, comes through in the moment. And if I'm passionate about something and I'm like snapping a photo and I'm sharing it to an Instagram story and then it goes away, there's something like about that ephemeral nature where it's just there. It's here. Like you can feel the authenticity come through. Whereas like if a post went up every 3 p.m. at 3 p.m. every day and it was the same format, and it was perfectly arranged it may not have that same, like you kind of tune it out after a while. So I don't have a great schedule. I think the idea though, uh, like the, the overarching idea is to really bring people into the process. Just like pull those curtains back and let them see more than you really think they should. Like even times where I'm like, I don't want to show you, you know, the, my office looks great behind me here, but there's plenty of times where it's a complete wreck in here. And that's where I'm like, oh, I shouldn't show them. But if you show them all of the things, you show the process, like, when I was shooting a video of myself during quarantine for our Kickstarter campaign, I mean, it was ugly in here. It did not look great, <laughs> but people were just responding and asking, you know, about camera gear and like, what's the blanket there for? And what's this there? And I think mm. that raw, like raw organic nature of doing things is why you see, you know, professional influencers, which I'm not, I'm not putting myself in that camp, but people that do that really well, like, why do you keep watching? Why do you keep wanting to see what's happening? It's because they're not, making everything curated, scheduled, perfect, they're actually letting you see some of the like human side of it. Yeah. Yeah. Beyond the whole, you know, remarkable product kind of idea. What's the, in your view, what's the relationship between design and, and marketing? You can take that any number of ways, but just curious how you think about, you know, the connection and the relationship between sort of how, you know, the the aesthetics and how you package something together versus actually going to market and, and selling that thing. Yeah, that's a big that's a big question. We could go all different areas of that. I think design is often thought of as aesthetics, and I think aesthetics play a huge part of what Ugmonk is about, the way we present a product. But I think it's even more than that. It's the design of the story of the product, the way we're going to communicate it to our audience, the way we're going to showcase it, the context that we're putting it in. For example, if we're showing a product in a certain setting, so we're taking, I'll just put our, our desk organizer called Gather. If we place that in different settings, it takes on a different kind of connotation or association for the viewer where they're thinking, oh, I could use this in the kitchen or I could use this in my office. And there's a lot of intentionality placed in the visual design and storytelling of how we show what we make versus it all being in a vacuum somewhere. But then I think it's also more than that. I think it's the way, you know, I still write all of our emails that go out to our list. And it's like, I'm just telling you the story of like why I like this thing, how I built it, And the design of that versus, again, trying to sound like some huge corporation is very intentional. So I think part of it is product design. A huge part of it is that storytelling, marketing design in a way that the visuals and the copywriting and all of those things come together. And that's where I found a lot of fun just trying to create like that's a challenge for me as to how do I make how do I tell the story of this product through the Ugmonk lens you know, shooting product photos, getting that story across, whether it's a video, a photo, or just copy is, is really fun for me. And I feel like that's the challenge where I keep just getting stuck in this loop of like, how do I do it again? Like, how do I, Mm. how else can I do it for the next thing? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that you do a really good job of that. And I think that's, it's probably this, you know, this muscle that you build over time, but now, you know, it, it at least feels like, man, like everything is just so perfectly sort of constructed 
And you can tell that there is a lot of that intention. And one of the things that's really stood out to me are your landing pages. One of the ones I was looking at recently was analog for the, I don't know what you, what you would call it, but it's sort of like this, this paper to-do list organizer is you probably have a, a better word to describe it. But I was looking through the landing page and I was just blown away by the level of detail and sort of the way that it was constructed. I was wondering if you can kind of walk me through the behind the scenes of how you think about putting something like, like that together. Are you taking any sort of like frameworks or approaches? Are you stitching together things you've already written from emails? Do you do any like customer interviews or using words that customers have used? Because I would love to know just how you construct a landing page from start to finish. And I'll have a link in the show notes for people to check it out. But it's, it's a great sort of starting point and, or just example in general for how to sell a product in a very authentic, well-designed way. Well, yeah, first off, thanks. That that means a lot because I'm sure you've seen a lot of landing pages and you come across this stuff all the time. I think, yeah, for me, I have this weird designer founder hat mix where I'm always where I'm actually still designing things, which is rare. I think for a lot of founders, Mm -hmm. they're they're usually hiring designers and trying to communicate their vision through a designer or a design team. Like I'm still actually laying out those pages. Now I'm not doing the dev work to make them actually function in Shopify and all that, but I still get to geek out on like the visual design and UX of a landing page and the actual product and the packaging of the product. And that's just because that's, I think, where my skill set is strongest. So my goal for that landing page was really to take our Kickstarter page and bring over the same story aspect that you, you're used to seeing in a Kickstarter and a Kickstarter video. Mm-hmm translating that onto our site, which I think is something that most Kickstarter campaigns miss. Like they have, they could have a great campaign, great video, great kind of content and animated GIFs. And they've got this whole kind of long scrolling page, which you're like, if you, if you're interested in the product, you end up, you know, scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and deciding if you're going to back it and which tier you're going to get. When we go over to like a regular e-commerce site, why do, why does everyone just revert to a few thumbnail images a two line description and a buy button. And it's Mm -hmm. like, all of that goes away. And I think it's easier. It's easy to just get that up and throw it in a template. But I, I really wanted to take the analog story and it's all about how I use a physical to-do list to get things done and take that story and those, that imagery and that video and bring it over onto our site where it feels like you're still getting the whole story, if not more, like it almost, it feels more native to our site and, and feels better. So that was the goal. And then as far as like bringing in some of that social proof. And I, I've had friends testing the system even before I launched it. I've been sending them cards and been like, hey, what do you think of this? Just giving samples, like real samples to people, not paid, nothing, you know, there was no incentive other than like, hey, I wanted you to try this. And then getting some quotes quotes from them was cool to incorporate because it has that social proof. It's not just me that likes the product. I've got, you know, 30 other super high performer people that have given us quotes and testimonials to, to use on the site. So I've incorporated that. And I think there's definitely some some flow to a landing page where you have that product and the the why behind the product. And then it gets down into like the details and then the social proof. So trying to incorporate all those things, but it's not something that I do every day. Like I don't design landing pages for a living. So, you know, when you said that it, it feels really well considered, that's like good because I spent a lot of time on this, but I don't do this. I, I wouldn't even claim to be a web designer um, by mm. trade. So that was the kind of the reasoning behind all of it. Yeah. I love that component of, bringing Kickstarter uh, and sort of the lessons learned, the best practices from a page like that over to your your landing page, right? And sort of rethinking the product page as a whole, you know, sort of from first principles of like, hey, I think this, you know, Kickstarter does a really, really good job of selling a product. Why don't we just sort of replicate or use some of the lessons from that over to our product page instead of using the the standard template, you know, or whatever sort of the, the usual checkout flow or I mean, you know, product page is. Do you, do you take that across all of your products or has this been more of like a recent development since it's from Kickstarter? Yeah, I've only done it on a few of our key products. And I think one, it takes a lot of time to, to design and think through and, and to do that. And if we were to do it for all of them, it would be a, a pretty labor intensive process. But I'm also trying to push people towards these keystone products. Analog, this to-do list system is really is making up a huge portion of our sales and why people are finding out about us and people are coming back. And, and it is the remarkable product right now, ever since, well, it's been almost a year since we launched the Kickstarter and we cannot keep them in stock. It's literally like they're coming in, going out, coming in, going out. So that... I think putting more attention and more time and more energy behind those certain products were, that we feel like deserve that extra weight. I would love to you know, do a landing page for every single product, but it, it, it wouldn't make sense with the number of products we have. Right, right, right. 
So speaking of Kickstarter, I'm curious if you can walk me through your thoughts on, you know, why you use Kickstarter, how you use Kickstarter and just how your, I mean, I, I think, I believe all of your launches have gone successfully, right? They've all been funded and sort of it's the, they're the genesis to how a lot of the, the products you've created were started. So, you know, Kickstarter is this, it's a great platform. I don't know when it was started, but I'm just curious how you walk me through sort of your first experience with it and how you use it as a part of your product development process today. Yeah, I mean, Kickstarter is interesting because it's evolved and it's changed. Originally, when Kickstarter started, it was literally like to kickstart things that wouldn't happen. Like a band wants to produce a record and they need $4,000 to, to make the physical whatever, a CD right. or vinyl. And it was all about like getting to that point so that they could produce the thing. Kickstarter has definitely changed now and in, in for good and for bad. And people see it almost as a store and they go there to like pre-buy items that may or may not ever exist. And that is, there's a lot of people that are very jaded about Kickstarter from a backer and a consumer side because anyone that's backed multiple Kickstarters has probably been burned by one or more creators. And that's kind of the risk. Yeah, like that's the risk you take is, is you're trusting to, to be that early adopter and, and try to get the thing off the ground, which sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But from my angle, like using, when I launched Gather, this is the, the modular desk organizer. When I launched that on in 2017, I believe, it was really like, one, we needed the money for tooling. Like we needed to make sure the product validation was there because to make the tooling was very expensive and to make the production run happen, but also just to put it out there and it allows people to kind of come along that journey. As we were talking about before, they get to see that the numbers go from zero to a hundred to a thousand and then it starts to climb and you're building it in public where people feel like they're part of a movement. They feel like they're part of helping this thing happen versus if I had launched that solely just on our e-commerce site people just buy it but they have no no idea are other people buying this thing you know like is this popular am i just the only person interested in this and there's no like movement there's no tribe that's assembled around a thing um, whereas kickstarter kind of it brings people together and allows them all to say hey we're helping make this thing happen and then sometimes it takes on a life of its own and you know we raised I forget how many percentage higher than our goal. Our goal was 18,000. We raised 430,000. It starts to become a thing and then it starts to get written up and you have extra PR and there's extra validation between uh, behind the product. That would be kind of weird to do like every product launch on our site to show like how many we've sold, how many units we've sold in the last you know 30 days. We could do that, but it's just a different mindset that Kickstarter really enables. Um, and it brings together all those people that are the early adopters and, and the people that want to see a product exist. So I did that. And then last year we launched analog on Kickstarter and we eclipsed the gather Kickstarter and we raised another 450,000 and we had twice the amount of backers, I think 5,000, around 5,000 backers. And it's just like, I think there, there's something to the Kickstarter mechanism and reaching a larger audience that than I, than I could reach on my own organic social media, which is non-existent at this point. Um, we're, we're seeing this ripple effect happen where if we launch the thing, we can bring our audience to Kickstarter and then we can see that ripple effect just go way further than we could if we launched it on our own site. So yeah, that's the plan is to keep going back to it for better or for worse. I think Kickstarter has its pros and it has its cons, but there's way more pros than cons for us. And we've seen it help mm-hmm. us get two of our major products off the ground. Yeah. It's really this, this kind of amplifier where you take the process mm-hmm. of building a public and showing behind the scenes and, you know, bootstrapping a product from the ground up and then you give it like a public place on a third party and then it now has like a life of its own and it builds this momentum in a way that's also a little bit, maybe even more authentic because it's not just you, right? It's, it's Kickstarter is, you know, the one that's showing the numbers and is giving the behind the scenes and is, you know, creating all the mechanisms for people to, to get involved to the tiers and things like that. It's sort of the, the format, right? That really loops people in and and then also allows people to share it, right? Because that's, that is built into kind of the Kickstarter sort of flywheel, right? Is you get someone there and then they back it and then they're incentivized to, to share it on different social media sites. And it's, it's a thing, right? Everyone wants to share the things that they're, mm-hmm. that they're trying to get bootstrapped and, and kickstart and, you know, spread the word and evangelize the, these products that they love. I think one more thing on that is like the scarcity. So like Kickstarter always has a start and stop uh, time because it's a campaign. So you pick anywhere between, I think you can run it for seven days up to 60 or 90 days. But because you see these days kind of ticking away, these hours ticking away, (coughs) excuse me, you're seeing like 
should I back it? Should I not? You're seeing like the last few days and you see this big uptick right at the end because everyone's like, ah, should I, you know, should I do it? Should I not? That <laughs> if we launched everything else like that, like our products on our site don't have a limited lifespan as far as like we're only carrying this product for 30 days. That would be hard because we'd have to come up with a new product every 30 days or a new collection. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely an element of like the scarcity of getting in early, being rewarded for being a backer, seeing the behind the scenes, supporting creators, voting with your dollars, like all of these things that the more we talked about it, the more we're like, man, this makes so much sense for the way that Ugmonk is built. I don't think every company is built that way, but because we are, you know, we're bootstrapped and we're just doing this, we need the money to make the thing. It still feels good to go back to and use Kickstarter as a platform. Any non-obvious kind of tips or strategies to making the most of Kickstarter, depending on, you know, that could be related to sort of the video, uh, the way that, you know, the content that you include, the way that you structure the campaign, pricing tiers and rewards. Just wondering, like, you know, of course, anyone and anyone could, could could go to Kickstarter and sort of like launch a product or even any company, like you said. But what are the things that really make it successful and allow you to blow your goal out of the water and raise, you know, 2,000 or 20,000% over the goal, whatever it was mm-hmm. for you guys? Yeah. Yeah, the number one thing that I tell people when they're asking about Kickstarter is is you need to have an audience to bring to Kickstarter. So if you have nothing, mm-hmm. if you've, you have no email list, no following, no social media, it's going to be really hard to put that product on Kickstarter, regardless of how good the product is, even regardless of how remarkable the product is. If you don't have an audience of some type to bring to it, it's going to be hard to get it off the ground. So that's the first thing is building that audience in the pre-launch stage, whether it's a landing page capturing emails you know, it's, it's got to be more than just a few friends and family, but building that that audience is what makes a Kickstarter kind of have that momentum to get that, that flywheel turning. So that's the very first thing. Kickstarter will bring more eyeballs than just what you bring to it, but it's all, you know, with the algorithm and the way that they want to showcase popular things, they're not going to just show a product randomly. So that's the first thing is, is make sure you have an audience to bring even if it's just a few hundred or a thousand people. I'm not talking like you have to build a 100,000 person mailing list. And then the storytelling in the video, at least in my opinion, is crucial. So the hmm. the nature of like how somebody engages with a Kickstarter campaign is they're going to watch the video first or they're going to scroll the page. So if they're going to watch the video, that video should should really tell the why behind the product. And the more energy and and time you can put into the video itself, I think the better the Kickstarter will do. Because it's it's not just about the product. Again, like the product can be beautiful if it's sitting there and nobody knows what the thing is. They have no reason to buy. So that that video is really crucial. And then taking that video and then pretending that somebody didn't watch the video and scrolling the page and basically with animated GIFs, with photos, with text, replaying, re-storytelling that whole campaign or that whole video through text and images because that's like another way people will just kind of scroll down a page really quick. And those are like the two opportunities you have to sell the product or to get someone interested in it. And sometimes people weigh way too heavy on the page and the video is, you know, is really crap. Or sometimes the Mm. video is great and the page doesn't give any more info and like you're kind of losing that. So those are, that's some of the main pointers are like when you're thinking about presenting a product on Kickstarter is just thinking about like the video and how it presents it, how it tells the story and the why behind the product. And then how does that work in non-video form? Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, the pricing and the reward tiers? Do you discount the products? Do you offer, you know, I don't know, vi- video Q&A or extra perks or discounts across other products? I've seen like a huge array of, you know, strategies and things that people do to sort of try and incentivize. I'm not sure sort of which ones are, are worth it or work and which ones are sort of just fluff and people could go without and don't really matter. Yeah, there's a lot of schools of thought on that too. So like, and, and Kickstarter is really its own ecosystem and its own thing. So if you've never done a Kickstarter, it's not the same as regular e-commerce. It's not the same as a regular product launch. There's so many like just idiosyncrasies that dealing with Kickstarter and the type of people that are there. Discounting is usually a thing that most people do because being the person that helps the product kind of launch, you want to offer some sort of discount or incentive. I've seen discounts up to 50% off just for the, you know, being a mm-hmm. Kickstarter backer. But I've also seen people launch it at full price and just say, here, here's the thing we want to make. This is the amount of money we need to raise. If you want to be the first one to get it back at this tier. And sometimes just that being first in line is enough to get people to say, yeah, I'm willing to take the risk. I'll, I'll back it. Um, versus always trying to get dollars off. Cause 
honestly, nobody really knows what their future retail price will be. It's always like, you know, estimated future retail price because nobody knows we haven't gone through oh, the production. Right. We don't have all the real costs. So so the, the savings can be a little bit of a arbitrary number. I think it's more about knowing these people want it first and they can get the bragging rights of saying, hey, look, you know, like I, I have analog like in front of me and like you guys don't and, and they're the ones using it and they're really interested in it. So there's also ways you can limit tiers so you can put that scarcity on certain tiers. So if you're like doing early bird tiers and trying to get people in the door fast, I think you know, the idea of scarcity is a huge part of what makes a Kickstarter a Kickstarter. It's only there for a limited time only limited number of people and then it's gone and then you're kind of then it's off to the masses and you have to join the public launch of the thing mm-hmm. yeah yeah i think that the just getting it first kind of value proposition is vastly underrated especially as someone who's very much like an early adopter myself and i love having like the new and the next thing and just being able to get my hands on it and i'm also just very impatient and so for me it's like <laughs> okay if i know i'm gonna want this thing i might as well just pull the trigger now and make sure that i'm the first one because Otherwise, I'm going to go crazy if uh, if it launches and then it sells out and I have to wait, you know, three or six months. It drives me nuts every year when, you know, I used to go through sort of the, the, the release cycle of the new iPhone every year. I've since been off that train and I haven't gotten one for the last two years. I plan to this year. But I used to be, I was literally the one who was hitting refresh, you know, on apple.com at midnight just to be able to try to get, be the first one. Cause otherwise I knew I'm not going to get my hands on it until, you know, December or January or a few months later, drive me crazy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's a huge driving. I mean, that's like with all of the sneaker drops and all of the things that now, you know, it's like trying to get there first. And I, I think it's funny because we talk about like limited edition products or limited things. It's like. The reality is in the physical world, every single thing is limited addition to a point, right? Like yeah. we're never, nobody makes infinite a number of number of products, but it's all about getting it, kind of getting it when you want it as a consumer, being able to get the thing, especially, you know, if you can get it ahead of the rest of everyone, it's why they have like the fast pass lane, or I don't know what it's called at, at Disney world. Like you want to be able to jump ahead and mm-hmm. pay a little more or do whatever you have to do press the button fastest. And I think that's just part of like human nature. We want to have that kind of to gratify our own desire. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned pricing a little bit in uh, with the Kickstarter campaign of, you know, it's estimated pricing. You don't really know what the retail price and value is going to be. You have to go through production. You have to, you know, work out all the numbers and the metrics and the models. And I'm curious if you can walk me through a little bit how you think about pricing for Uckmunk. One being sort of this independent, you know, creator and not a huge, you know, brand and manufacturer yourself. And then two, just from sort of your brand and design and sort of the value that you want to deliver on how you think about choosing a price point for each one of your products. Man, I wish I had a better answer for this to show you my secret guide to pricing. Uh, but it is, <laughs> it's different for each thing. And I think we've changed um, our pricing, our cost change. So since we are, I don't like to call us a DTC brand because we don't really fall in the camp of like most direct to consumer brands, but we are, we're selling directly to consumers. So we get to dictate the price. It's not about the wholesale, hitting a wholesale margin to and eventually get to retail. We're selling, you know, 99% of our revenue comes from us selling individual products to individual consumers. And that means we get to say if we want to have a 10% margin or a 90% margin on our products, we don't have to worry about kind of falling into any camp because we're not giving out line sheets at uh, trade shows to try to get like, you know, the normal keystone pricing for physical retail goods. We try to hit a certain percentage on things, but there's there's many times where our costs creep up higher than we'd like or we're using mm-hmm. a, the quality of leather, the quality, like we're using such expensive materials and we're using solid walnut for analog. It's, and right now wood is through the roof. You know, the price the cost of oh, just right. lumber is absolutely crazy, but I'm not willing to compromise to like, let's switch it to a cheaper, let's just use, you know, pine or something that's cheap. So some of the times our costs just creep up and we're losing some margin and we have to adjust for that. Sometimes we can just say like, let's leave it where it is. We feel like the price point is right. So there's target percentages that we're looking at to, to try and get that margin, but it's also a feel thing. I think it's, you know, the value of the product. What do we think it's worth? And it's less scientific. It's more of an art and less than a sci- less of a science, I think for us, which is very different. I'm sure for a huge, you know, fortune 500 company that the way they're pricing their products is very scientific and it's, it's all about the spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then do you do a lot of discounting or coupons or deals? You know, even, I don't know if you do any sort of the collaborations or partnerships as well, where you might sort of give an exclusive 
you know, you know, deal or even as an acquisition strategy to get someone's email address. But just stopping, because I know that discounting coupons are sort of, uh, there's lots of schools of camp or lots of schools of thought and camps mm-hmm. people fall in there as well. I'm just wondering where you fall. Yeah, we do. So we do discount. We do run, usually run three big sales a year and we try to limit that so that it's, it's exclusive and, and people aren't expecting a deal every single week. I think you look at a lot mm-hmm. of the big retail brands that if you know you can always get 30% off, why would you ever pay full price? You know, if you go into Gap or Old Navy or one of these like retail stores, everything's always 60 or 70% off. So it, it kind of devalues the product and then they have to artificially bump the prices up to go down. I've tried to really stay clear of that slippery slope of getting into discount mode. But what I, the way that I've thought about it and the way that just feels good to us is to do three big sales a year and have those limited. They usually run for a week and we offer a pretty substantial discount for us. And that, that scarcity, again, that exclusivity of like, this is when it is. If you want it on sale, this is when you get it. If not, then you can buy it full price the rest of the year and try to knock it in the mode of discounting everything. Because that for us as a small business and with not the, the huge margins that you'd see from, from a lot of companies, it can be a slippery slope that to, to really start hurting. And if you crunch the numbers, it's like, man, we're not making much at all. If we discount mm-hmm. this often, it certainly moves the needle as far as product, as far as orders coming in. But I'm trying to, I try to be really conscious of like, let's, let's keep these three times a year exclusive and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Discounting is very, definitely a very slippery slope. How'd you, how'd you get to that three times a year number? Is that built around certain number of holidays or just product life cycles times you find, you know, are appropriate or did you, was it used to be, you know, two or four or five at one point you decided mm-hmm. on three? It, it's just because, so we did, we do one around the holidays. So around Christmas time, Black Friday, I think, again, there's schools of thought on that where you shouldn't discount. You should stay well, clear of that. We chose to make that one of our, our sale times. And we've done that traditionally. We've also trained our customers. So it's like, if you've been an Ugmonk fan for a while, you know, kind of when these things are generally coming. And then I started doing an anniversary sale. So that usually ended up August, September. That was Mm -hmm. just a thing where I would create a limited edition set and a a special t-shirt for that anniversary. And we would do a sale along with it just to celebrate this started just year one, 2009, I guess. Not that I thought I'd still be doing this, this, this many years later. And then we usually do something in the spring, early summer, which we just did actually currently now as we're recording this, probably not the time it's up, but those three times, just to kind of give us, it gives us some predictability and it also, it just feels right for what we do. So yeah, it's not a, not a textbook answer. And I don't think it necessarily follows any trend of like, this is what you do if you're in retail in clothing or whatever. Like we don't really follow that. It's just what seems to work for us and work well. Right. Yeah, no, I think that's great. And like you said, it's, it's very much an art. And if you, even if you kind of science your way there, I think you, you fall, end up falling into the whole kind of discounting strategy. And well, if we need to have a, you know, excuse to talk to our customers for every single holiday, every day, then like, well, you're going to have to throw out some sort of discount to make it interesting. Or you have to, if you're gonna make a big deal out of it, you also need to create some sort of scarcity and a reason to act now, which ends up being uh, a discount or a coupon or something like that. And so by limiting it, you also limit the number of discounts you have to give out. Right. Which I think is very smart. And then the seasonality, yeah. right? I think that, you know, May, August, and November sounds like a great time to run deals and only have to worry about it those three times. Yeah. And I would say we're not exclusively, like we would never run a product on sale ever other than those three times, but we also try to keep that really specific. So it might be something we're going to highlight and it's a specific discount. These three times a year are the main focus of discounts. And that just keeps it, gives us the ability to say, Hey, if we wanted to run a sale on all of our graphic tees, we can do that but it's not going to be site-wide. It's not going to be on everything. Just making sure that we're not just using discounts as an easy lever to bring uh, revenue through the door. Right, right. Here's what happened to Ugmunk and, and to you personally as well when the pandemic hit and happened last year. How did you guys take it? What happened? How did you adjust? And what was that like just going through it as a business? Can I just reply with like the roller coaster emoji? Because that's what it felt like. <laughs> yeah, right. It was like... Oh man, it was crazy because March, when when COVID was starting to get serious here in the US, I think we all panicked and we were all like, I don't know how we're going to get through. Like, am I going to have a business after that? And we just saw sales go down, 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 down to, you know, almost to a screeching halt. And that was a really weird time. And to look at how far things have come in just over a year, what I did was like, well, people started working from home because they had to, because we were all in quarantine and that was a thing. So I sent out a personal email just saying, hey, look, like, 
we have a ton of work from home products, gave some of my favorites, gave some tips about working from home. I've worked from home for over a decade and it was just a real personal approach. It wasn't trying to beg for people to like, Hey, keep us. We're, we're drowning over here, but just saying like, Hey, we have something valuable that I think is relevant. And so we ran a work from home sale that ended up just that one single email ended up just taking off and kind of gave us like the, okay, I think we have a little cushion here. I think we're going to be good. A few weeks later, our t-shirt manufacturer was, he's in L in Los Angeles and was able to open to make face masks. This is early on again, like nobody was wearing masks. This was weird. The people were just starting to think about this. And he said, Hey, do you guys want to sell masks? I can't make teas right now. Like they'll literally shut his factory down unless he was making masks. And I decided to be like, you know what? We need him to stay in business to make shirts. Let's buy some masks and see if we can, you know, we'll put the Ugg Monk logo. Of course, we did it like really small, tone on tone. It actually employed a whole nother person by by screen printing them rather than just selling them blank. So we're like, okay, cool, let's do that. Let's add that cost to it. Not to try to make a ton of money, but just see what we can do and, and give people a good mask. So I got the sample and I was like, this is this thing is soft. This is really nice, as nice as a mask could be. And while, while none of us wanted to wear them, I was like, okay, let's sell these. Let's see what happens took some photos here in my home office. My wife's taking photos and we're just like trying to figure out how do we do this? How do we talk about masks in an organic way? And so that's what I did. I said, here's the story, helping my guy making shirts. He's hiring a screen printer or keeping a screen printer on to, to print the logo. And if you need a mask, we have them. Well, that took off. It just went crazy. It was like the first wow. batch that we had sold out in a couple of days. And everyone knows the story of masks from there on, if you live anywhere in the world, because that's what everyone is looking for. <laughs> and that, that story of how those masks ended up being one of our best marketing strategies or customer acquisition strategies, totally roundabout, totally not planned. They took on a life of their own and, and tens of thousands of masks later, bringing in mostly, you know, a huge portion of first time Ugmonk customers through our doors oh, to wow. buy our masks. Again, it was people buying the mask saying how much they loved it, telling their friends, you keep complaining about your mask. Why don't you buy an Ugmunk one? And then people would come buy the Ugmunk one and they'd come back, they'd buy three, nine, 12 more. And it was like, it just went from like, I don't know if we're going to make it to like this crazy, you know, our highest month ever in sales. And the last year, so the masks really took us out of that pandemic mode. And we were like, how are we going to ship all these orders? Cause it was, you know, 20 times what we were used to. And that was a huge part of what got us through. Then wow. a few months later, I finally launched Analog, the Kickstarter that we've been talking about. And I was planning to launch that right in March when everything was kind of falling apart. I had put that on hold. I ended up shooting the video in my house by myself and then working remotely with an animator. And we put the video together and I spent like two months on the campaign, just like building out every asset and everything within the constraints of being locked down. Launched Analog because I said, everyone's stuck at home. People need a product to help them focus right now. I mean, you got kids, you got all these responsibilities. I can't miss this moment. So launched that. And then again, that campaign went insanely huge. And I'm very thankful to come out of the pandemic with those memories. And unfortunately, you know, we, the masks are something we hopefully all have to, all can forget at some point, but in a cool way, it really supported our manufacturer and it brought thousands and thousands of people through our door and to our virtual mm. door that never had even heard of Ugmunk before. So that's a, that's the, the good part of the silver lining, I guess, of last year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I started with, with bad problems to have, which are low sales and low cash and a lot of worry. And that ended with good problems to have. It seems like with, um, you know, not being able to keep up with demand and new products and sort of just craziness with all these people coming through the door and, and now having to ship all this product and all these new customers. That's, that's awesome. I'm really glad to hear. I remember going through that and and I'm uh, watching, kind of getting the snippets a little bit, sort of what was happening with your journey. And it was just really inspiring to see what was happening and just your whole audience and community come behind you and be able to support, you know, sort of shop small, shop online, but not just kind of scrape by, but really excel and exceed, which was awesome to see. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm super grateful. And, and it goes back to having that audience had I not had not the email list, because I can call it an email list, but it's you know, those are all real people behind those emails. That's why the email list is valuable. And mm. the metrics of an email list are just vanity metrics. If they're not real people, if they're not opening emails or if they're not, you know, going to buy, but the people that are on my list, my list is not massive, but I know those people on the list care. And that, that was like the thing to have in my back pocket, the thing that nothing can really 
take away from Ugmunk is having real supporters, 1,000 true fans, 10,000 true fans, 100,000 true fans behind us, regardless if it's a pandemic where we're selling face masks and we're like, hey, we're, we have mouse pads and desk organizers and all this stuff, or it's, you know, Instagram and Facebook kind of throttling their feeds so we no, no longer see it. Like, they can't take away the people. So I think that's mm-hmm. where my most valuable marketing asset, if you will, is really those real customers. Yeah. Yeah. It's that relationship. It's that affinity and it's the loyalty people have built with, with you and with the brand. I'm also curious. So you mentioned how analog has been one of the best selling products that you've created. And Ugmunk has gone through this product evolution of first starting with t-shirts. And now you have these really sophisticated, beautiful, crafted products like analog. Why do you think that it is one of the more successful ones? Do you think it was kind of just the, the serendipity of work from home and you know you, you had this sort of in the works right before and now you're able to release it right in the midst of everyone going remote? Or do you think that it's a combination of other things? I'm just curious your thoughts on why analog seems to take off more than, than other products. I think there's probably yeah probably all of the things you listed. I mean it's it's the timing of it, but it's also the fact that I, I had a need. So I am like, you know, all over the place. If I have 14 or 40 browser tabs open, chances that I'm looking at like my to-do list on one of them is very slim to none or switching to an app on my phone or on my computer. Like I'm, I'm all over the place. Like I'm just digesting, you know, I'm looking for inspiration. I'm doing things. So I've been using a physical to-do list, a physical card in front of me of some sorts for the last decade. Then the idea to turn that into a product, I was thinking about how can I make this product more Um, enjoyable to use to make more sense to make me more productive and slowly building this thing which is really just this you know it's a three by five card and it's got a list of 10 things to do that habit I had already been forming for so for such a long time and I kept going back to it like if I don't have this card in front of me my day is a mess and I'm just all over the place I'm working on you know the urgent not the important working out of my inbox and the more people I talk to, the more people are like, they're like, yeah, like every time I open my phone, I end up, you know, just checking the, checking my Instagram notifications. I'm checking things I'm checking my email. Then you end up just looking at your phone, staring at it, being like, what was I even supposed to do? <laughs> oh, I should look at my to-do list to find the things that I'm supposed to do. And, and that habit, unfortunately, is like most of us where we, we store things in devices that are made to distract us. So when we go to those devices and we wonder why we can't get stuff done, it's because we have endless amount of distraction. So that's where analog, like the impetus from analog came from and was born out of. And I really wanted to do it in an monk way, meaning like the materials, the paper stock, the way the corners are rounded, the wood card holder where the cards are stored and they live, going through all of those design details to make it something that people would actually use versus like get the cards, throw them in a drawer and like, I don't know. And that, that it really struck a chord with people. I mean, I keep hearing testimonials from people being like, I've tried every type of to-do app and to-do list and journal. And the only thing that's working is these little cards. And it's just like really cool to see how much it's resonating with people and how much it's actually helping people versus just sitting on their desk looking pretty. Yeah. Yeah. It really has a very functional use and it's a whole method and it's a whole system. And I love having those, those sort of opinionated products where it's not just like a, here's how you can do anything and everything. And especially that's how a lot of online sort of, you know, software works is right. It's just kind of build your own productivity, project management system. But when, you, when it's actually sort of the beauty and the, the values in the constraints, it's in the way that you design the product. It's, it's in the way that it works. That is the value. And that makes it such a remarkable product. Yeah, thanks. I mean, it's the design, really the design cues that I they incorporate into the product. And, and if people go to the to our site, and they, they look at the landing page, so they'll understand all of those cues. But the way that the, the task signals can be filled out, the constraints of only having 10 lines, the way that the card is you know stiff enough to stand up in the card holder and be propped up right next to you all day, whether you're in front of your computer mm-hmm. or, or at a desk. I think those little things that people don't really think about, they're like, I could just print this off on my computer. I could make these cards. And, and I would tell them that, go for it. Like, you're more than welcome to take this system, adopt the principles. But the little design details and cues kind of start that habit and start you thinking about, Every day you sit down, you grab your analog card, you write down up to 10 things you're going to do. That right there has helped me prioritize and help me think through the, the work I'm supposed to do versus just jumping right into replying to emails and like kind of putting out fires all day. So I like to think of design as the support system or the structure that makes that product work. It's not purely just an artistic product. Yeah, yeah. 
one of the things that I feel like you really, really excel at as well is the product imagery and video. And you mentioned sort of animation earlier with the Kickstarter videos and stuff like that. I mean, just everything that you put out is, is, you know, definitely checks the box of uh, aesthetically pleasing, right? And even from like the kind of the sneak peeks and teasers for products that you're working on, those two are very, very high quality. It's not like you're just, you know, taking like a quick picture, like the lighting is there, the angles are there. It's very, very intentional. I was wondering if you can walk me through a little bit to your approach to sort of the product imagery and video and how you think about showing off your creations. Yeah, I'm definitely a self-taught photographer when it comes to looking at like our product photography and, and video, which I, the only the analog video is the one that I've actually shot myself or I've shot a few other ones, but that's the main one versus hiring a studio to do. So I don't claim to be necessarily a know-all cinematographer and, and photographer, but it's all just like figuring it out as I go. And I started with like the most basic setup of throwing a shirt on the floor in my dining room trying to like overhead hold the camera up and snap a picture with no flash or anything to like slowly building and, and looking at other photographers work and look, you know, watching YouTube videos like we all have done for everything and just trying to glean information and watching other photographers work to get to the point where I can present an image that I'm proud of. And that, that looks on par with a much higher budget brand, but we're very much DIY. I mean, like everything, even though we have a real uh, warehouse and headquarters now, it's like, we're still like DIY, like taping shirts to the wall to get the sleeve right. And, <laughs> and you know, somebody's holding a reflector and we're standing on boxes. And I, and I think that's the part where people miss too, is they think that you have to have this huge budget production for everything. But mm -hmm. if it's actually more about learning how to see and how to do things, make things the way you want them to look, that you can use, you can do a lot of things with duct tape and some cardboard boxes to just get stuff, get the result you want. So we spend a lot, a lot of time shooting our products, um, intentionally not using like mock-ups or renders of the products. Like these are real products. We're, we're hanging in front of us, we're putting on a desk and we're shooting them. And that's intentional too, because we want people to know what the product is going to be like when they get it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes when you're buying something that's a mock-up and the graphic looks nice in the mock-up on the shirt and you get it, it ends up not looking anything the same colors. The colors aren't right. The print's not right. So for me, it's just one more aspect of storytelling, really. It's like, how do I tell the story through the screen from me to you? Well, I can take a lot. Of, I can spend a lot of time showing that through visuals and photography. So that's that's why we present ourselves in that way. Like we're really OCD when it comes to that stuff. But in the long run, I think that investment pays off. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's been fun watching my wife. She has a little handmade jewelry business called Joycraft Handmade and she makes polymer clay earrings and a couple other things she's, that she's working on. And when she first started, you know, we were first trying to play around with, you know, we have a, a little cannon, right? And so we're trying to get the lighting right and trying to figure out the angle and what's the best place to display it. And just over time, kind of picking up those cues and figuring out what works and, you know, understanding how people want to, uh, want their product to be shown as well. And so now she has like this whole elaborate setup where, you know, a certain time of the day, the light shines through our, you know, our dining room at a certain time. And then it's really good lighting. So we don't need any flash. And then, you know, she'll go to Joanne's, get fabrics, and then she'll take a picture of almost like a selfie that really shows like what it looks like on an ear, right? So that people can imagine mm -hmm. what it looks like. And it's one of the things that you can't really, again, you probably can't science your way there. You have to sort of some more art and you have to figure it out and eyeball it a bit until you figure out what works for you. I just love that challenge. I mean, there's a repetitive theme in all of my work. It's like this idea of conquering these challenges, whether it's like figuring out how to send an email to you know, to a list and segment my list, or it's trying to figure out how to make a product look the way I want through a photo. And all of those things where it's like, if you're just willing to get your hands dirty and do those and try them, you learn so much more than just kind of outsourcing it to an expert and saying like, I don't know, let me just have somebody else send our email, our marketing emails for us. You don't mm -hmm. really, really know what's going on under the hood. And I like to just jump in and, and really understand how things are, especially from a visual side, but all of the technical side, all of running a business is really that, is understanding like, how does this work? How can I do it? Figuring it out, messing up, trying again. And that's the scrappiness that, that I like about the way we are and the way that we're still super small on the back end. I mean, you know, we're held together by a lot more duct tape and, and shoestrings or whatever than, than you'd probably would imagine, but we're able to present through our, through our website, through our design, spending all this time, you know, designing every email that we send out, making sure the typefaces and everything is cohesive. Like that's super important to me. So we can present as polished as we want to in a digital way. Yeah. Yeah. 
Speaking of which, you guys are you're sort of, I guess you're, you're moved in now to the new headquarters and warehouse, and that's still very much a, a work in progress. And I love seeing the updates on how you guys are, you know, crafting the space and, and using it. And But I feel like that also has a lot to do with like the personality and the way that you create and, and sort of the, the whole ethos of being this, this sort of creative brand where now you get to own that experience in the warehouse and the, the headquarters to do everything scrappy in-house there as well. Mm-hmm. It's been really fun. So yeah, also in the middle of a pandemic, we moved into our first space here in Pennsylvania where we we took all of our inventory that was currently in my parents' basement. We built their basement into a into the Ugmonk warehouse for oh, wow. the last probably nine or 10 years. It was bursting at the seams. It was t- overtaking their whole house. It was like one of those things that was the inevitable. And every year we'd put it off, put it off, put it off. <laughs> um, and finally found this amazing space here, not too far from where I live in Pennsylvania and and it gave us a lot more space to bring everything under one roof. So we, now we have like our makeshift photography studio, some workspace. We have product, we have area to inspect all of our products. But yeah, even that, like I, we got to paint the walls and po- polish the concrete floors. I've never done that and don't recommend doing that as far as how <laughs> intense uh, the amount of labor and uh, how intense it was, but doing all of these things and then just kind of figuring out the flow. Like, how do you set up a warehouse? Where do you put the shelves? Where do you get the shelves? You know, and mm. the, all of that stuff to me, is exciting. Like I don't, maybe I'm just wired really strange in a really strange way, but I love thinking about that. I like setting up Ikea furniture. Like I like those challenges, those puzzles, putting together all the things to create something that can execute a vision versus just like keeping it all in my head or, you know, in a, in a file somewhere. It's like, I want to see this come to life. So it's been really fun and we're just incrementally building that space out and we're excited to have people in there soon. And have some events and some warehouse sales and, and I don't know, maybe some design talks using that physical environment to create the Monk atmosphere. That'd be really fun. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, uh, beginning to wrap up here, I'd love to take a peek at your swipe file as it were into some marketing examples, campaigns, brands that you think are really you know notable or that you find inspirational. Any that come to mind or a few that you could walk me through? Yeah, I'm going to start with the most cliche answer to this question, which I haven't listened to all the other guests, so I'm not sure if they've used this, but Apple does a phenomenal job with their uh, marketing. And I think, you know, obviously they have teams of people at Apple working on copy, working on photo, working on landing pages. But if you go to any one of their product landing pages, it's really interesting to look at the way they tell the story of the Apple Pencil or, or uh, AirPods. It's not specifically like, here's how they compare to beats or here how here's how these headphones technically are great it's so much more than that and there's all these subtle cues about the way that they present both through visual and through text what their products are and why they're great and why we're all suckers for them and we end up spending all of our money wanting that next iphone or that next thing so i i think yes there it's overused in the marketing world but there's a lot to study and there's a lot of really talented people behind all of the, these things thinking about how are we going to release the next Apple product? So that's you know one of the things that I, I would look to as far as how are, how are they talking about it versus some of the other tech companies? Yeah, I mean, how could you not love Apple, right? It's just a, an amazing designer. Any other like classic or sort of old school, timeless, you know, brands or examples that you look for as a, as a product designer, you know, being in the physical space, right? There's lots of inspiration to draw from for, you know, years and years to go back on. I like to look at older industrial designers and more of the classic, some of the graphic design and industrial design that came 50, 70, 80 years ago. Dieter Rams, who is a industrial designer, most well known for his work at Braun. You've probably seen some of his turntables and his razors and some of the things that he worked on because the designs themselves, there's a Braun watch, a Braun calculator that are still in production to this day. And what I love about his work is how it has stood the test of time. It, it was relevant 50 years ago, and it's still relevant and still looks classy, still has that minimal aesthetic, that attention to detail today, where if you put it next to your, you know, your iPad, you put one of the calculators, it still somehow fits. And that's mm. really rare to say about most design work. It, usually you can pinpoint the time it was designed in, and it was like, that one feels old, that feels 70s, that feels 50s. So I study a lot of his work and just you know admire this, the breadth and the scope of what he's done. And you look at, the closer you look, the more you see. And this is pre-technology. I mean, this is before they could just open up Adobe Illustrator and start you know designing an interface for something. 
So that, and I also like Charles and Ray Eames, most well known for the Eames lounge chair, at least probably these days. But they designed, you know, all sorts of furniture and industrial design, again, with this like mid-century modern, we'd call it now aesthetic, but this timeless appeal and very thoughtful, the, the use of materials. I love to look at that because if something can stand that long, it's better to be studying that and incorporating that into my work than just kind of like, what's the hot trend now? Like, okay, neon colors are in, let's make something neon. Then the next thing, you know, and trying to follow these trends, what's hot on TikTok right now or something. It's like in two months from now, that's old business, that's old, old news. So I like to look more at those things than I do try to like pulling from current things. But I think everything kind of inspires me. You know, we're, we're sponges when it comes to what we're, what we surround ourselves with. Well, last question for you. When I, when I say everything is marketing, which is the, the title of the show, what does that mean to you? What comes to mind? I think we hit on it some with the product, uh, with the storytelling, the brand, when, you know, a logo, a logo is not a brand, a brand is not marketing, but all of these mm. things together. When I say the word Ugmonk, when you think of the word Ugmonk, when you pick up an Ugmonk product, essentially all of that is marketing because it's all being done through a voice, through a tone, through an aesthetic. And, you know, my goal is to continue to make that a thing. So when somebody hears that word or they're thinking, you know, where do I get nice workspace accessories? The word Ugmonk pops into their mind, not because we just necessarily ran a Facebook ad, but because of what we represent and the voice and the tone that we've created. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jeff, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a blast. I love that you've been able to incorporate the timeless design as well as creating remarkable products. I think that's a really difficult balance and you've managed to pull it off somehow. So congrats. Appreciate you coming on. It's been an amazing talk. Yeah. Thanks, man. Thanks again to Jeff for coming on the show and make sure to check out Ugmonk, especially their new analog product, which I just bought right after this recording. And if you can spare a moment, click on the link in the show notes and pop on Twitter to thank him for coming on and sharing everything that he did on the episode. To wrap up, here are a few of my takeaways. As I suspected, your ability to run a successful Kickstarter campaign is largely dependent on your ability to build an audience beforehand. Secondly, I hadn't really thought about this before recording, but Jeff was one of the original Build in Public founders, but with physical products, which is much, much, much harder to do. His transparency and ability to build anticipation is truly impressive. Lastly, it's clear that Jeff has really cultivated an authentic relationship with his audience. You know, when COVID came, his audience had his back to support him, and he's built that affinity over time, and really now that's his most valuable asset. If you've got a question or a takeaway you want to share from this episode, you can actually do so in the Swipe Files community. You can chat with guests of the podcast, as well as a bunch of other top-notch marketers. Join a community that will help you do your best work and be prolific. Check it out at swifiles.com slash membership. You can also get my free newsletter, Marketing Weekly. It's a curated digest of the best marketing content in your inbox every Sunday. And finally, check the show notes for all the important links. And if you could do me a quick favor, hit that subscribe button wherever you are and leave a review so more people like yourself can find the show and help me grow the podcast. And with that, I'll see you in the next one.